The book of Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, and it's easy to find. It's not the easiest book to read or swallow. It kind of swallows you, doesn't it? And I want to finish tonight the sermon that I started this morning and must say that, that God came upon my heart today in an unusual way and convicted me of, of my own sin in, in ways that He does not do that often. And so the judgment of the book of Malachi is a judgment with which I have to deal. And as I work through it, I want to share it with you. Does God have a complaint? Does God complain? He, he, he registered a complaint through the mouth of the ancient prophet. As, as a matter of fact, he had seven complaints. And to each one of these complaints, the people ask, wherein have we done this? And you can almost see them, you know, with a kind of a palms up innocency. Wherein have we done this? And God said, I have some complaint about your profanity. And they said, wherein have we taken God's name in vain? And He said, you've profaned my name because you call me Father and you do not honor me. And you call me Master, but you do not fear me. And you've taken my name in vain in the sense that you say you belong to me, but you have no urgency about me. You're guilty of a mild and empty and vain religion that has no conviction or commitment to it. And he said, you're guilty of sacrilege that's worse than a man who comes in and desecrates the altar because you bring to me that which is lame and blind and sick. And the two implications of that sacrilege were or are that it offers to God that which is of no value to us and therefore demands no sacrifice of us. And it offers to God that which we would be ashamed to offer to our best friend or to anybody else. Take it to your governor and see if he likes it, he said. And he said, you're guilty of a greed that is more atrocious than, than a man who openly worships mammon and has no faith in God at all in that all you do for God, you do for the hope of gain and reward. And he said, you're guilty of a weariness in service that's more wicked than total abstinence of service. It's better that you didn't even serve God because you're tired of Him and you're doing it out of duty. Your service is something you'd gladly relinquish if you dared. It's something to which you hold just for appearance sake. Know how it indicts us. Now he comes to the last three complaints. The fifth is found in verse 17 of chapter 2. And it's the complaint of high treason against God. Read it with me. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied Him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Now what does that mean? It means 
that the people are saying, God is a God of love, therefore there is no judgment for sin. It is a countenancing of sin. It is an excusing of sin. It is the attempt to gloss over evil and try to say that evil is not something that really makes any difference anyway. It's no big deal about sin. It's not that big of a deal. For God is a God of love. When a man begins to take to excuse sin and he begins to say that it really doesn't matter much how you live, that God delights even in the man who does evil, and that there is no real justice, that man is committing high treason against God. And it's a peculiar sin of our day. Ours is a day when people can't stand to be told of the judgment of God. And what are people really saying when they do this, when they are guilty of this treason? What are they really doing? They're lowering the standard of divine government. And when they do that, when the man does that in the church, at that moment he's fragrantly committing high treason against God. For all this talk about being that, that God is a God of love and He will not punish sin and He will not judge sin in our life is a misconception of what love is. For love is the avowed enemy of God forever. And whenever we begin to say that God takes sin lightly and excuses it and it's no big deal what you do in your life, at that moment we're saying that God doesn't love us for the more a man loves his fellow man and the God who creates man, the more he loves man and the God who created man, the more he hates what destroys man. A person called me this week on the telephone and I, was, I answered the phone and this lady had this kind of a shy and timid voice and she said, Pastor, I hope you can help me. She said, My husband has been... Uh, committed by the, gov by, the, uh, by the courts to Norman for alcoholism. And she said, I have three children and we are hungry. And I hung up the telephone and I thought in my heart of hearts, who is there that could love that stuff that destroys men like that? And how is it that we could, we could deal with that, with, with, with that, 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 that evil? How could we handle that? How could we use that? How could we sell that? How could we make light of something that takes someone and destroys him and makes his children hungry? For the more you love man and the, and the God who created man, the more you hate that which destroys him. About three summers ago, I was sitting up in the bleachers at the Texas Ranger baseball game. And right about the seventh inning, during the seventh inning stretch, when they were out there, you know, smoothing out the grounds, this guy came out of the stands. He was just, you know, it just caught everybody by surprise. And he staggered out there and he touched first base and he just took off to second. And by that time, everybody knew that the guy was drunk 
and had crawled out of the stands. He, he, ran, he made a dash for second base. When he touched second base, he just tumbled face first down in the dirt, just kind of tumbled over. And he got up and he just made a beeline for third. When he rounded third, he just tumbled and rolled a few times. And everybody was roaring and cheering. And he went sliding into home plate. By that time, the security guards were hauling him off and everybody was booing the security guards and laughing. And I was weeping inside. My daughter Cindy was beside me and she was starting to laugh. I put my hand over on her and I said, don't laugh at that. How is it that somebody could make light of something that will destroy someone? Imagine your little child. You've just tucked her into bed. She's your firstborn, bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. And you love those curly golden locks. You love her more than you love your own life. It's a warm evening, so you leave the window open for a cool breeze to blow in. Sometime during the night, a snake, a poisonous snake, crawls through the window and lies there on her body. And finally as she moves, he digs his fangs in her. And the next morning you come in to discover her lifeless body there and this poisonous snake coiled up in the bed. I ask you, would you take the snake to your breast and caress it? Caress it? No, in your anger and violence, you would destroy it with an insane rage. How is it that man will take lightly that which will destroy man? It's high treason against God. And any time someone doesn't stand against it with all the might that's in him and with all the prophecy that's in him and with all the rage that's in him and he doesn't stand against it, he doesn't understand what love is all about. Love is the avowed enemy of sin forever and the more he loves God and man, the more he hates it. And the sixth the sixth complaint is found in verse 8 and we're gonna, of chapter 3 and we'll get right on uh, Dwayne's sermon. Chapter 3, verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Now, that, that's a pretty frightening thing for, for, for God to say, you rob me. Will a man rob God? What a question. Old men will rob men. Um, a public employee might rob the, 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 the public till. Or a, an employee might rob the company. And a thug might rob the convenience store and the taxpayer might rob the IRS. But to, to, to be asked, will a man rob God is inconceivable. It's just, it's an unbelievable. It's appalling even to think about that. I heard of a robbery that took place in New York City. Some thieves broke into an apartment and they took the valuables. The police were checking it out the next day and they found in one room of the apartment these thieves had taken the statue of Christ and turned his face toward the wall. For even these thieves didn't want the eyeless statue of Jesus looking at them while they were committing this robbery. And no one wants to think that he would be robbing, be, be a thief while God is watching, especially when we are robbing God. Um, 
Will a man rob God, you say? Well, of course not. No one would do that. And yet the prophet points his finger and says, Yet you have robbed me. That's the fact of it. You have robbed me. When he said that, the people must have been stunned. They must have been shocked. They were angered and they were offended and insulted. Probably just like the day when the illustrious R.G. Lee stepped into the pulpit in the famous Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee and began his sermon like this. Some of you drove to church this morning in stolen cars and you sit there with stolen furs on your shoulders and stolen clothes on your backs and stolen shoes on your feet and you'll ride on the lake today in stolen boats and the people were angry and incensed and insulted And so they must have risen up in the prophet's day and they said, robbing God, prove it. And the prophet didn't back down an inch. He said, as you look, he said, you are cursed with a curse. Now I want you to understand what he's talking about. He's saying, don't you understand? Don't you see? Don't you you recognize it? That there's something wrong in the land? Have you ever wondered why we're so surrounded, he's saying? And and his word is as relevant as when the ink was wet upon the pages. Doesn't it seem strange that we're surrounded with all of this wealth and affluence and we're so short on happiness? And doesn't it bother you that you live in a marvelous and beautiful home and yet there's no happiness in that home? And there's hostility? resentment between husband and wife, between parents and children, and there's open enmity and hostility and anger, and the generation gap is broadening. He said, doesn't that concern you? Doesn't that cause you to question what's wrong? Things are not working out. Things are not falling into place. Things are not turning out like I planned. Why, I have more money than my parents ever dreamed of having. I have a better job than my father ever had. I drive a better automobile than my forefathers, my father ever ever dreamed of having. And yet there's no happiness, there's no fulfillment, something's wrong. And he said, let me tell you what's wrong. You've taken the tithe that belongs to God and you've used it on your own selfish interest and God has cursed you with a curse. Now that's uncomfortably clear. It's clear and uncomfortably clear. And some of you might say, I don't see it that way. And my answer is, quite possibly, that's true. But the Bible still says that the tithe belongs to God. And you say, well, I'm in debt. And I say, well, who isn't? And yet the Bible still says that the tithe belongs to God. And our first obligation is to Him. And you say, well, I have dependence and I have obligations you don't know anything about. And I say, we all have dependence and obligations, but the tithe is sacred to God. And you may be heroically and unselfishly taking care of your family and your relatives, but still our first obligation is to God. No matter what you think or no matter what you say, the tithe is God's and sacred to Him. And so some say, well, listen, that's legalism. That's Old Testament language, and Jesus came to do away with the Old Testament. That's a principle laid down in the Old Testament that's relevant forever. 
For to his first couple, God said, The first tenth of your increase belongs to me. The first tenth of your fruit of your fields. The first tenth of the flock. Your first child belongs to me. And Jesus did not come to destroy the Old Testament. The New Testament is not another principle. It is a higher principle. So that when Jesus came... He came to fulfill the Old Testament, to live it to a new, lift it to a new and higher level that even has a greater demand than the law. For he said, the Old Testament says, Thou shalt not kill, but I say to you, don't even hate your brother. And the complaint of God is that we've taken that which belongs to Him and we've used it on ourselves. And, and as a matter of fact, G. Campbell Morgan says, that what he's talking about there, and it's an, it's an intriguing interpretation of this, he said, we, God is saying we have robbed him in tithes and offerings and that the complaint is not that man has not given the tithe. The complaint is that that's all he's given. God's complaint is not that man has not given a tenth to God. The complaint is that that's all he's done, that he's found the minimum and that's all he's done. And when God saves a man and he lives under grace, it demands the greater gift. And the final complaint, if you can stand it, it'll hurt but it will get there, is chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. And it's the complaint of blasphemy. And he said, Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, What have we spoken against thee? What have we said against you? You have said, It is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept His charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Now the word blasphemy is a word in the Hebrew that means to speak injuriously. It means to say something that hurts the person against whom you've spoken. To blaspheme against God is to say that which hurts God and the cause of His kingdom. Now did these people literally say, verbalize, did they say these words about God? Did they speak injuriously against Him? I don't think so because they ask, when did we say anything against God? I think that they, it wasn't that they spoke against Him, it was that their life spoke against Him. The person who stands out on the corner of Second and Evergreen and says, I hate God, is less dangerous in influence than the person who stands inside First Baptist Church and says, I love God, but does not obey Him. The blasphemy that we are to fear and that God despises is the blasphemy that joins the great congregation and says, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven and then thwarts the will of God and denies His kingship within. A little boy heard his father praying for missions. And after the prayer, the little boy said to his father, Daddy, if I had your money, I could answer that prayer. What we're talking about basically is influence. And so the, um, 
And, and so the young man preached on Sunday occasionally as a lay preacher. And, and, and one Sunday night he preached on honesty. And the next day he was catching a bus down to his employment. And he gave the bus driver a bill and he got the change and he went back to, to his seat and he was counting and the bus driver had given him too much change. And he thought to himself, this company will never miss this dime. It's just too much trouble and hassle to go all the way back up there and give it to the bus driver. But he just felt convicted to do it. So he went back up to the bus driver and he said, you gave me too much change. And he said, I know it. I gave you a dime too much. And I watched you in the mirror as you counted the change. I heard you preach last night on honesty. And if you would not brought back that dime, I would have never believed in preaching again. A few weeks before Jack... Wurtson, the youth evangelist, was saved. He was leading a dance band and he hired a trumpeter for his dance band and he deliberately underpaid him. When he got saved, he got under conviction of that and he knew he had to make restitution. So he went back to him and he said, I deliberately underpaid you. I owe you this money. And the man said, I have known that. When I heard you had become a Christian, I didn't believe it. And now I know it's genuine. And we're preaching on Sunday evening through the book of Acts and there was this man who stood there and preached to the council until they were so enraged that they took up stones against him and they stoned him to death. And when he lifted up his face, his face was, his face was like an angel. His name was Stephanos, Stephen. And he saw the Son of God. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. When Jesus went to heaven, he sat down, so he must have stood up to welcome him. And, and, and Stephen said, I see you, Lord, I'm coming home. And there was a man in the crowd holding the coats. His name was Saul, and he never got away from that day. That's what we're talking about here. The complaint God has about us is that we've borne His name among our fellows in this town and we've been injurious to God's cause and to His kingdom because we've not been true to the commitment. And they know it. And they know it. And that's a blasphemy of the highest sort. And God said in three places that you have blasphemed my name among the Gentiles. Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. All His wonderful passion and purity, O Thou Spirit divine, all my nature refine until the beauty of Jesus is seen in me is my prayer. Will it be yours who will go to the halls of Durant High School tomorrow? Will it be yours who will step on the campus of Southeastern State University? Will it be yours who will move among the, the pagans of this world and who are watching to see if the name of God is genuine?
Let's pray together. Our Father, we sense tonight your judging presence in this place. And we're glad, Father, that what we've heard is not the word of man. For the word of man brings resentment and retaliation and anger. The word of God is like a sharp two-edged sword that brings conviction, humility, repentance, godly sorrow. And I thank you, Father, that you've struck to the heart of each of us. And that godly sorrow works to repentance, not to be repented of. We come before you, Father, begging for your forgiveness, seeking your mercy and your restoration, thanking you because you will not turn us away. In Jesus' name, I pray. The invitations tonight are three. The invitation to come and receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. I've spoken to some of you personally about giving your heart and life to Christ. Some of you have been touched by the EE teams. You'd like to come tonight and declare your faith in Christ right here publicly. Jesus said, come, follow me. Repent, believe, accept, trust, open the door. Would you do that tonight? The second invitation is for you to come and place your life in the membership of First Baptist Church. The purpose of this church is to hold out to the world the message of God. Would you come and help us do that? The third invitation tonight is for you to come just to an altar, to a place of where you would bow before God to say, God has a complaint about me. It's a legitimate complaint. And I know that my life is not measuring up in these areas or this area. And I want to get it right. Would you do that? You'll be glad you did. And God will bless you. Let's stand. You sing with us. Only trust Him. We invite you to come.